May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Happy New Year, Westwood. I'm going to share with you the tail end of Isaiah Isaiah 61 this morning, but I offer some comments. Isaiah 60 and 61 and 62 are the the books of the prophets, and they offer two key prophecies. The major one, that Jerusalem would be uh, prosperous, and perhaps the secondary one, that there was going to be a Messiah. The translation that the church gave me to read is from the CEB, or Common English Bible. This is a shortened, a short vocabulary dictionary, or scripture. It is 3,000 English words only. The purpose of the Common English Bible was to make it, make it simpler and more accessible to non-professionals. And it has the unintended side effects of having problematic translations. And I'm referring specifically to the third line of this reading where it says, the close of victory. The word close of victory are spoken in this common English dictionary, while the Revised Standard Version clearly says, garments of salvation, which I think hits the Christian population differently. Now I'm gonna read it the way I agreed to in the, uh, in the common English uh, Bible, which by the way I've ordered in Amazon, it hasn't come yet, but I'm going to own a copy of this uh, different version. So here we go, Isaiah 61. I surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God, because he has clothed me with the clothes of victory, wrapped me in the robe of righteousness, like a bridegroom in a priestly crown. 
and like a bride adorned in jewelry. As the earth puts out its growth, and as a garden grows its seeds, so the Lord will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Reading from Luke 2, uh, verses 21 to 38. And as, as Jerry noted from the Common English Bible, uh, I will be referencing translations during my sermon, so I don't know if he just foretold that, but we'll talk about that later. When eight days had passed, Jesus' parents circumcised him and gave him the name Jesus. This was the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived. When the time came for their ritual cleansing, in accordance with the law from Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice in keeping with what stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. It is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is a sign to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. She was very old. After she married, she lived with her husband for seven years, and she was now an 84-year-old widow. She never left the temple area, but worshiped God with fasting and prayer night and day. She approached at that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The word, this is the word of God for the people of God. The title of my talk today is, How Does a Weary World Rejoice? We Root Ourselves in Ritual. During Advent in the Loft, we have been working through a sermon series entitled, How Does a Weary World Rejoice? And this was an aptly timed sermon series, in my opinion, because these are indeed weary times. Yes, we are in the holidays, and we have just celebrated the birth of Christ, but in the midst of this joy, we are profoundly aware of the inequality that we see all around us whether it be poverty, whether it be hunger, 
whether it be the realities of civil rights and liberties being taken away from people in America and abroad, and in particular, wars in Palestine and Israel and Ukraine, where there are so many innocent people dying. These are indeed weary times. And so this Advent season, we have been reminding ourselves that even in the midst of these weary times, we are also full, or we also can be pulled towards joy, because our joy is rooted in the truth that we belong to God. This doesn't eliminate the truth of this weariness. Rather, it reminds us that even in the midst of our weariness, we have relationship, we have love, we have a deeper connection to God that sustains us and builds resilience during this time. And so this Advent season, we are asking ourselves if we can hold on to this deep truth, the truth that we belong to God and the truth that we deserve to feel joy, because I believe the world needs your joy. The world needs all of our joy, even if we are weary. Now, in Luke 2, we read that after eight days had passed, Mary and Joseph circumcised their child, and they give him the name Jesus. They returned to the temple in Jerusalem to enact these sacred birth rituals of their culture and tradition. And in a sense, we recognize that rituals mark sacred turning points in our lives. As we heard from the children, birthdays for them are fairly significant. It's significant to be double digits. It's significant to get your driver's license. It's significant, perhaps, for some to be able to vote. There are also other sacred rituals that we have, such as baptisms and dedications, or perhaps high school or college graduations. Also, we have the sacred ritual of marriage, and for some, the sacred ritual of divorce. What other events or occurrences would you add to this list? Is there anything that comes to mind? In our contemporary context, what I want to suggest is that we don't regularly mark daily or even special events with rituals that recognize the sacredness of life and the presence of God in the everydayness of our lives. We aren't a very ritualistic culture in the West, particularly Christians anymore. The lack of rituals in the lives of most people in America, and again, especially those of us who are Christian, is historically unique in human history. We are but a small fraction of time, and our lack of daily rituals is very, very historically unique. I believe that given the technical advancements of our time and the economic security that many of us have, there seems to be little room left in our lives for mystery. We want to know everything and figure everything out. We have this desire to be in control, and this desire for control pushes us away from mystery. I wonder, what have we lost by removing ritual observances from our daily experiences? What have we lost by removing ritual 
from our daily experiences. I would like you to sit with this, not only now, but as you leave worship today, to ask yourself what perhaps you might be missing from not having daily ritual experiences, if you don't. Advent, for me, is one time of year where I am reminded of the importance of ritual in a Christian tradition and ritual in my family. You see, we grew up, broadly speaking, pretty poor. We had some economic security for the early, early portion of my life. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Reaganomics kind of took that away from us in Michigan. Many people, including my parents, lost their jobs in factories after they were able to kind of break unions, and we struggled for many, many years as a consequence of that, as I've written about in our e-news recently. After my parents lost their jobs, my dad went into a deep depression and had to go to drug rehabilitation. And such, my mother found herself being a single mom with three children, trying to figure out how to make a way out of no way. So suffice it to say that for many years, I grew up with a fairly austere Christmas. There wasn't a lot of gifts, but there was, in fact, a lot of love. Now, this was also theologically consistent with my family, however, because my grandparents had been teaching us since my mother was a child, and as she grew up, that Christmas was, in fact, about Jesus. That Christmas was not about presents or consumerism, that we spent so much of our time during Advent at the church. Now, to be completely transparent, my grandmother did slip us the Sears catalog from time to time to allow us to imagine what we could get. And we, I used to love circling those things. And it was so, honestly, it was, I think about it in terms of ritual because I knew I wouldn't get any of those things, maybe one, maybe two, because we couldn't afford them. My grandparents couldn't afford them. But the time to imagine that perhaps there would be a day where I could have that kind of security, the financial ability to have these things, was always something that brought me a great deal of joy. We, as I said, spent tons of time at church and several times throughout my childhood, even as I was a little child, I remember going to the midnight Christmas Eve service. These rituals, such as those services, remind us that God is present, that the sacred is all around us. They ground us in the truth of who we are. This Christmas Eve was no different for me. Christmas Eve was an all-day event. I spent most of the day at church, and for me, it was a joy because I love being here. I love what I do, and I know I am blessed to be able to do the work that God has called me to do. Molly, Pastor Molly, asked me to preach the 11 p.m. service, and so I preached about the importance of making room, about the importance of, in the midst of our weariness, it's important us to make room to invite other people in so that we might share joy together. I talked about how the innkeeper made room and how the animals made room for Mary and Joseph and Jesus and how Mary and Joseph made room for the shepherds and how the circle of love kept expanding to continue to make room for more and how this is reflective of God's love. We try to live by this saying or this way of being, this making room, not only in the sanctuary here, but also upstairs in the loft. One of the sayings we have in the loft is that we are unapologetically inclusive. 
That means we don't apologize for having a variety of people in that space, including people of all faith backgrounds. I actively say I invite people who have belief in Christianity or not belief to worship with us. And we have been blessed to have people from different religious communities join us from time to time in that space. However, this past Christmas Eve, there was a Jewish gentleman in worship at the 11 p.m. service. This person confronted me after worship because he was uncomfortable with my references to Palestine during the sermon. Now, to be clear, I went back and re-listened to the sermon twice, and I remembered what I wrote, and I have down what I said. And what I did is I referenced the war, as I did today, in terms of why it was so weary for me, and I referenced the loss of innocent life and how that was weighing on my soul because I can't help but look at pictures of children and pictures of people dying wantonly and not have a, a sense of pain, have something inside me that cries out in hurt and anger for that loss of life. I also referenced Palestinian hospitality practices in terms of how the innkeeper likely invited Mary and Joseph into their living room, which would have been a space that perhaps Depending on where they were, animals could have come and gone. And so how we have this idea that they were outside in a barn is historically inaccurate from what we know based on archaeological evidence and Palestinian hospitality culture. He did not like how I referenced the land as Palestinian, even though this is the technical term that the Romans would have used. Perhaps Jews would have referred to it as Judea. But we do know it was called Roman occupied. It was Palestine. That's what they would have referred to it as. He was upset that that's the word I used. He was upset that he could tell that I had some sympathy for the loss of life that included Palestinian life. And so then he asked me after worship how the church, he literally said, how does the church feel about the war? And I told him that there is no one way that this church feels, that each of you are entitled to your own, hopefully very informed opinions and arguments about how you feel about this particular conflict. I told him how I felt about how the tragic loss of life was painful for me, about how I have family that have served in the military. I know what it's like to have them lose their lives. I know what it's like for them to have to take lives and the ways in which they deal with the consequences and impact of that on their psyche every single day. I know the reality of war through them. He said that this war would end if only Hamas would just return the hostages and if Hamas would stop shooting rockets in the, into Israel and then the war would stop. He said that's what needed to happen and that is the consequence of the war. I felt frazzled. I didn't know what to do. I didn't quite know what to say because I didn't want to upset or offend him, but I also wanted to talk to other people. As you all know, Christmas Eve is a time when lots of new people come to church, and I want to make sure they feel connected and have a sense of community, a sense of warmth. And and inside of me, I was confused. I was frustrated. I was hurt. I didn't quite know how I felt, but I knew I felt as though what had happened to me was something that didn't confer the hospitality practices that I know I have when I go to visit other faith communities. So I reached out to my friends and talked to them about what happened. And in these moments, for me personally, when I'm knocked off center, in the moments when I feel as though I am not quite myself, 
my practice is to fast and pray because I grew up in that kind of space. And so for me, I often turn to the Lord's prayer as a way of grounding myself, as a way of returning to myself, as a way of trying to turn inward and say, well, what is going on within me that is allowing me, shaping me, moving me to be so unsettled? The Lord's Prayer in the Common English Translation, I believe, helped me understand a bit about my experience that night and a bit about what was going on in our conversation. I was speaking with with John Holbert earlier in in the worship service about this translation, as was pointed out earlier, and how these different translations of our text gives us different perspectives and ways of examining what this text should mean for us today. There are ways in which this prayer particularly even the uh, Beatitudes earlier in Matthew, how it's shaped by our translations to kind of take off some of, I think, their strength and vigor. But what I will read is this common English translation as I think it captures a bit more of what I felt arise in my conversation with this gentleman. It reads, Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we forgive those who have wronged us. Forgiveness for how I have wronged God. In this prayer, the invitation is to do what Jesus says later on and not pay attention to the speck in someone else's eye, but to look at the log in our own. It is an invitation to do what contemplatives call a U-turn, to turn inward and say, well, what have I done to enable this to happen? What is going on within me that is disrupting my relationship, not only with God, but with this person. How have I failed to love? How have I failed to love? For you see, for me, I believe the failure to love, this is the temptation of what we might call the evil one, the temptation of selfishness. This limits who we love. When we turn inward and stay turned inward and don't actually look outward to others, this selfishness is a lure of our evil, of the evil one, we might say. And so for me, as I thought about my conversation, I asked myself, could I have said something that that would have enabled him to understand to have sympathy and empathy and care for all those, including Jews who are suffering in this place? Could I have done something different? And had I done that, would he have responded differently? Would he have responded in a way that recognized the suffering of all people who are in that space? Because, you see, for me, I believe it is not radical to believe in nonviolent solutions to the challenges of nation-state craft. It is not radical to believe that we can actually have political solutions that don't require the loss of life. You see, because in my conversation with him, as I continue to reflect on it, he did not seem to care at all about the innocent Palestinians who were dying, but he very much cared for the innocent Israelis. As I mentioned, the innocent 
everyone over and over. He was clear that it was the Israelis who were more suffering, who were morally justified for their actions. And, and you see, for me, this kind of moral inconsistency that leads to normalizing and justifying oppression is upsetting. It is, it is something in me that I just cannot go along with. One of my good friends, Dr. James McCarty, is a professor at Boston University, a professor of human rights. And what he argues is that human rights begins when you see another human as a human, when you see them as a full person, when you see them as someone carrying the imago Dei. And I, I know what it feels like to live in a world where your life doesn't matter to so many people. I know what it's like to live in a world where people may not want to see you die, but they don't care if you have all the things that you need to live. I know what it feels like to be in that space, the world that I occupy as a black man who understands poverty, who understands what it's like to be hungry, who has faced discrimination on a daily basis. I understand what it means to live in a space where you have the absence of civil rights and liberty, where those things can be taken away from you. This way of being in the world resonates with the contemporary realities of Palestinians, and it resonates with the parts of the story of Mary and Joseph that we read today. It resonates with all those who live under Roman occupation, Roman oppression, those who continue to live under the oppression of imperialism. And this is why I believe he was upset. This is why I believe he could not understand what I was saying, because he chose to not see the other as a person, as a full human being. And I can recognize how difficult this might be, given his own particular context and situation, given what he had been going through and the fear that he probably has. And yet, what we see in the gospel, we see in the, in the life of Christ is that we practice rituals to remind us, to prevent us from being tempted to slipping into dehumanization because we know that to dehumanize others is to legitimize our own dehumanization as well. This is why ritual is so important, because it reminds us that we have to find ways to connect to the truth of who we are and to the presence of the sacred in all things and in all people. Rituals remind us that God is present, that the sacred is all around us. Rituals ground us in the truth of who we are, even when the world tries to tell us another story. So while one reason Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple is to fulfill the law and the prophecies told to them, another reason, and I believe just as an important reason why they bring Jesus to the temple to be named and circumcised is so that that he can be accepted into the covenantal community so that Jesus can see himself connected to Abraham, stretched through Moses, the kings and the prophets, all the way to his very life. They bring him to the temple to participate in rituals so that he can take his place as a part of the story, so he knows where he comes from. So that in the moments of his life of deep joy and sorrow, he remembers that he is not alone, so that when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays for God to take the cup of suffering, he prays that God's will be done. He remembers that he carries his ancestors with him. Jesus remembers a saying from the Jewish oral tradition, the Mishnah, that would have taught him, 
If two sit together and words of the law are spoken between them, the divine presence rests between them. So my friends, when we consider the question of how a weary world rejoices, we can remind ourselves that though we may be weary, we can root ourselves in ritual to remind us of the truth of who we are, to remind us that we belong to God, to remind us that our joy is found in God. We root ourselves in ritual to remind us that the other is a human being, that those who are called our neighbors are worthy of love, and that they, our ability to love them, is our way of resisting the lure of the evil one. The challenge then for us is to find and create rituals for celebrating the presence of God in the ordinary, to find and celebrate the presence of God in the everyday experiences of our lives. What might those daily rituals be for you? How will you share those rituals with your family? And how will those rituals remind you of the fact of our interconnectedness? Our ability to answer these questions will go a long way to help us as we find ourselves in these weary times. Amen? Amen.